morning, City Light uh, Church. Uh, I'm honored and excited to be here with you guys uh, to preach from God's Word. And uh, I just want to take a moment and say, uh, affirm what Alex just said. It, I am so grateful uh, to be a part of the City Light family of churches and to be a part of a movement of God. And I'm, I'm so grateful uh, for your generosity and your investment in David and Natalie and to send them with us. There are going to be generations of kids that are impacted by the gospel uh, because of your guys' generosity and investment in them. So I thank you so much uh, for that. Well, as Alex said, my name is uh, Jonathan Randall. I currently serve on staff at City Light Omaha, uh, but in literally less than a month, uh, I'm going to load up my entire family, uh, and we're going to hit the road and head out uh, to plant a church in Greeley, Colorado. And uh, I'm going to be one of the, the co-lead pastors there, but uh, Keith, uh, who's going to be my other co-lead pastor, is currently serving at uh, City Light Fort Collins. Um, just a little bit about Greeley. Uh, Greeley actually has a lot in common with Lincoln. Um, it's a, roughly about the same size population. Um, Greeley is also a college town. It's home to the University of Northern Colorado, Go Bears. Uh, and so we're excited to reach that campus. And uh, Greeley's actually been dubbed where the Midwest meets the West. Um, and so even though it's in Colorado, it has a very Midwestern feel similar to uh, Lincoln. And so we're excited because City Light family of churches uh, is a gospel-preaching, disciple-making, church-multiplicative movement that started in the Midwest, and we're excited to see that movement actually go to the West uh, and beyond. And so we're grateful uh, for your partnership in that. Okay, sermon time. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. I want to kick off our time uh, by asking this question. What is the cleverest thing you've ever done to try and avoid something? Like, what is the cleverest thing you've ever come up with to try and avoid doing something else? Let me give you some examples to kind of flesh this out. If I'm trying to avoid work, one of the things I will do to try to avoid it is I will just say that I'm bad at everything and try to get somebody else to do that, right? Like, so if somebody comes to me and says, hey, John, we need you to put together this spreadsheet. I am the worst person to put together a spreadsheet. I'm terrible at math. You don't want me doing that. But you know who's a wizard with Excel docs is this guy over here, right? John, hey, we're moving a bunch of furniture. Uh, we're moving office spaces. Can you help move some desks? I am literally the weakest person on staff. You don't want to see me try to move desks. That will be embarrassing. But you know who's super buff and can lift 10 desks at once is this guy over here. You get the picture, right? Um, Natalie is not in this room, but if she was, I just gave her away my secret. Um, David, you can tell her later um, when I'm trying to avoid work. Now she knows. Um, uh, let me give you uh, another example. Uh, if I am trying to uh, avoid or if I'm facing an awkward situation, I will literally do everything I can to avoid face-to-face -face interaction with a person. I don't know if anybody else has experienced this. Like when I was in the sixth grade, I literally dated a girl without actually talking to her face uh, because that was an awkward situation for a sixth grader. And so my clever way of avoiding face-to-face -face interaction was actually talking through her friends, right? So I'm, you know, I, I asked her out through her friends. I, we talked about our favorite movie through her friends. We broke up through her friends. I never even talked to her face um, because I wanted to avoid that situation. And so I talked through uh, her friends. Anybody else have that awkward 
middle school phase. Um, all right. Um, all right, last example. If you're married, have you ever tried to do a chore, a household chore, poorly in hopes that your spouse doesn't ask you to do that again in the future, right? Am I the only, okay, like in full confession time, I've repented of this sin, I don't recommend this, this is not good marriage 101, um, but early on in our marriage, I, in order to avoid doing the dishes, because I hated doing the dishes, I would literally make the dishwasher a mess of organization, put like two dishes in there and then run it, so in hopes that my wife would not ask me to do the dishes, right? I'm trying to avoid that. My clever way was uh, loading the dishwasher really poorly. Don't judge me. Again, I've repented of my ways. I think, it's, I think it's fair to say, though, like we've all kind of been in maybe some of those situations where we've come up with some clever ways to avoid certain things in our lives. Now, I bring this up because I think in our text this morning, we're going to see people who encounter Jesus, and they too are going to come up with some clever ways to avoid committing to him. We're, we're going to see some religious leaders. We're going to see uh, the crowd. We're going to see Jesus' own family, and they all have these like different cards that they're going to play to avoid the real question, and that is, will they see Jesus for who he is, that he is the king sent by God, and that they uh, need to submit, they need to give allegiance, they need to give loyalty in their entire lives to him. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can play this same game here in 2022, can't we? I think for some of us in this room, maybe we have a, a, a list of excuses or reasons for why we haven't become a Christian or why we haven't committed our lives to Jesus. And we could run through that whole list. But if we're really honest with ourselves and maybe put our bias down for a second, most of those reasons... And most of those excuses are, are just a front to the real reason we don't want to become a Christian, and that's the fact that we don't want Jesus to have control over our lives. Others of us, maybe we're a little more subtle than this. Um, we like Jesus, right? Like, oh, Jesus is cool. Like when he's blessing my life, when he changes my circumstances, when he provides for me, when he tells me he loves me, like I, I love that part of Jesus, but the minute like, it comes to, like, the day-to-day -day interactions of my life. It's like, okay, thanks, Jesus, but I'll take it from here. And so we avoid actually becoming a Christian because we think we're just good enough to live our lives on our own with little to no help from Jesus. Others of us, we're even maybe more clever than that. And when we start thinking about our Christian life, we're quick to just jump mentally to our, our Christian resume, right? Like, I, I go to church. I grew up in a Christian home. I, I went on a mission trip. I was part of a youth group. And, and, and when we hear a message on what does it mean to actually commit to Jesus, we immediately throw out the front, I don't need that because I, I have all of these things over here that I'm doing for Jesus. But it's really just an excuse. It's really just a front. It's really just a clever way of avoiding our own hearts and the fact that maybe, just maybe, we haven't actually given control over to Jesus, that we're actually maybe trying to control Jesus ourselves. And so what I want to do this morning is answer a bit of an odd question, but I think it's the question this text asks, and it's this. How do you avoid becoming a Christian? How do you avoid becoming a Christian? 
And the reason I want to answer this question is because I think this text is going to expose at least three reasons or three ways in which we avoid becoming a Christian. And in answering this question, I think this text also provides three ways or three necessities to becoming a Christian. So here's the first answer to this question. How do we avoid becoming a Christian? We reject Jesus instead of repenting to the one that is greater. We reject Jesus instead of repenting to the one that is greater. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater is here. So the first way that we avoid becoming a Christian is we reject Jesus instead of repenting to the one that is greater. In this text, we actually see the religious leaders, and they come to Jesus, and they, on the surface of it, have this simple question, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This is basically a question that means prove it. Jesus, prove who you say, or prove that you are who you say you are. You say you're the king. You say you're the son of God. Prove it. Give us a sign from heaven that removes all doubt. Now, real quick, uh, I just want to say to those of you in the room, uh, if you're a person here that is struggling with honest doubts about Christianity, maybe, maybe you're struggling to believe that the Bible is actually credible, um, maybe you're in a position of life where you have a lot of trials or hardships in your life, and you're wondering, like, is God even real? Like, does God care about me? And man, you would really love a sign from heaven to confirm and, and alleviate some of your doubts. To you, I, ju I just want to say that God sees you in that place, and he longs to meet you in that place. And in fact, this church is a safe place to bring those doubts. Jude, uh, uh, verse 22 of Jude actually says to have mercy on those who doubt. And so if you're here this morning and you have genuine doubts, know, know that that doesn't disqualify you from God. That actually qualifies you, qualifies you for the mercy of God. Now, I bring this up because I want us to notice that Jesus' response to, this, to these religious leaders when they ask for a sign is not the response that you would expect, right? They, they ask for a sign, and he says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Whoa, Jesus, that's, that's kind of harsh, right? Like, the religious leaders are like, hey, can you give us a sign? Prove to us who you are, you say you are. You're an evil, wicked, adulterous generation, right? Like, it's like, that. where's the mercy in that, Jesus? Well, the truth is, uh, the religious leaders aren't actually genuinely asking this question. They don't actually have genuine doubts about who Jesus is. This is a front. They're trying to trap Jesus in this moment. In fact, earlier in the text, in Matthew chapter 12, we learn that the Pharisees and the scribes and these religious leaders, they are actually like concocting a plot to kill Jesus. And Jesus knows this. So you can understand his response, right? Like, if you knew that somebody wanted to kill you, 
and then the next minute, they're all of a sudden buddy-buddy asking for favors, you're going to be suspicious of that person, right? And, and so that's, that's what Jesus is doing here. Now, he's also pointing out the spiritual condition of these religious leaders and his response as well. He says, you evil and adulterous generation. Jesus is not just doing wordplay here uh, and trying to sound like poetic. He's actually hearkening back to the Old Testament when he uses that word adulterous, right? Um, When Jesus uses that word, he's referencing the way that the Old Testament talks about the unfaithfulness of Israel in the desert with God. You can read about it in Deuteronomy. You can read about it in Numbers. And Jesus wants to make this comparison here between the religious leaders and unfaithful Israel. I mean, think of the signs that Israel saw in the desert, right? They, they saw God actually bring about 10 plagues and take down the most powerful empire in the known ancient world at that time in Egypt. Then they saw God actually part uh, an ocean, the Red Sea, in order for them to actually go through on dry land. And then he used that same power to actually destroy Pharaoh's army. And then for 40 years in a desert, he, God literally miraculously fed and gave water and food to the Israelite people. And yet time after time after time, these Israelite people rebelled against God and were unfaithful to him. So do you think these religious leaders will be any different than unfaithful Israel? Do you really think a sign is going to make them faithful to God? The answer is no. And the answer is actually no for us as well. Even if we got every single thing we asked for from God when it comes to miracles, if if we had this giant Christmas list of uh, signs and miracles and wonders that we wanted God to perform, even if God did every single one of them, it would not actually be enough for us to believe in God because our fundamental problem isn't that we need a new miracle to believe. Our fundamental problem is that we need a new heart to believe. Jesus wants us to see that no amount of signs and wonders can make a spiritually dead heart start beating and come alive for Jesus. There's a deeper problem for why we avoid believing in Jesus. One thing that uh, I'm embarrassed to admit is that uh, I'm terrified of heights. Um, I don't know what's happened to me, but the older I've gotten, the more scared I have become of heights. Uh, In fact, if you were to show me one of those videos on YouTube of those people climbing those giant cell phone towers that are like a bajillion stories in the air, like I freak out. I have a panic attack. Like my palms start sweating, my knees start shaking. I will collapse to the floor watching that video. And so you can imagine that like skydiving is like my worst nightmare. Like, that sounds horrible. Like, that, that sounds like a, a skyrocket of anxiety and maybe a heart attack. I don't want to participate in skydiving. Now, for the sake of this illustration, let's say for the adrenaline junkies in the room, or maybe you've gone skydiving, if you were to try to convince me to go skydiving by just simply talking about how skydiving is safe and how the parachute works, and maybe you even jumped out of the plane and demonstrated what it looks like to skydiving, do you think that would be enough to get me to go skydiving? No, why? Because all you've done is shown me how skydiving works. You haven't dealt with my fundamental problem, which is the fact that I'm scared of heights. This is what Jesus is doing here with the Pharisees and the scribes. Just like no amount of proof in the safety of skydiving is going to fix my fear of heights, no amount of signs and wonders and miracles are going to fix the hard hearts of the Pharisees. They need a new heart in order to believe. 
See, Jesus is refusing to give them a sign to convince them to believe, and instead he's making a beeline to their fundamental problem, which is their hard heart. And at the end of the day, their hard heart is refusing to commit to Jesus. The request for a sign, it's just simply the religious leader's front. It's their clever way of avoiding following Jesus. And so Jesus, he goes after their hearts, but he does so in a really ironic way. Uh, He actually does give them a sign. Did you guys catch that in the text, right? Uh, Verse 39 says, uh, no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. I love Jesus here and how he interacts with people. You're not getting a sign, except you are getting a sign, like, right? Like, he's so uh, interesting in the way that he uh, goes about uh, ministering to people. And what Jesus is doing here is he isn't giving these religious leaders another miracle uh, as a sign to believe in him, because that's not really what they need. Instead, what he's going to give them is a sign that has the power to actually change their hearts. But the tragedy of this situation is that's not really what the religious leaders want. So what's this sign? What's the sign of Jonah? Jesus says, for just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What Jesus is saying is the sign that he's going to give these religious leaders and everybody is the sign of the resurrection. And he's making this comparison. Just as Jonah was as good as dead in the belly of a fish under the waters for three days and then was saved from death, Jesus was going to be as good as dead in the grave under the ground for three days. But unlike Jonah, he's actually going to rise from death and conquer death once and for all. And the reason that the sign of Jonah and the sign of the resurrection are actually similar is they're both meant to call us to repentance. See, they're not just random miracles. Jonah didn't get saved from the fish just because that was awesome, and then he went and preached to the Ninevites. No, no, no. That miracle actually gave credence to Jonah's message to the Ninevites, because now he can go to the Ninevites and say, hey, the same God that had the power to rescue me from the, the, this fish also has the same power to rescue you. And the response that they have to that is one of repentance. The same thing is true for the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus isn't just some random miracle in a line of long, a long list of miracles that Jesus gave. No, it gives credence to the message that Jesus has come to to conquer sin, to actually provide new life for us in Christ. And so The resurrection actually gives credence to that message so that we would respond in repentance as well. See, I I think we miss the sign of the resurrection when we just treat it as another miracle or, or at worst, a magic trick that Jesus performed. No, 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 no. Like, the resurrection isn't just one of many miracles that Jesus performed. It's not just something that proves that Jesus is God. No, the resurrection actually gives vindication that Jesus' call to repentance, actually, you can find forgiveness of sins. Because think about it. If Jesus lived and then died on the cross, this horrible crucifixion, the scriptures actually say we would still be dead in our sins if he had never risen from the grave. So you have no idea if there's any validity to what Jesus actually actually says. But because when Jesus on the cross says it is finished and because Jesus was risen from the grave, we know that when Jesus says it is finished, he meant it. 
and it actually is true, and that you and I can actually find new life, that you and I can actually be forgiven of our sins, that we can be given a new heart, that, that we can actually have a new life in Christ that starts right now as we uh, know Jesus. That's what, Eternal life isn't something that begins after you die. It actually begins right now. John 17, 3 says that uh, this is eternal life, that you may know the one true God. And as Jesus gives us that new heart, he's renewing us day by day until one day we will come up out of the grave and know uh, a relationship with Jesus forever. That's the hope of the resurrection. It's not just a sign, it's the sign. The question is, is will we let this sign, or the question is, will we let the sign we want keep us avoiding the sign we need? Jesus doesn't end things well for these religious leaders. In fact, uh, he digs even deeper into how dangerous their spiritual condition is by pointing out that pagans are going to rise up at the end of history and condemn them, right? The men of Nineveh are not part of God's people. Uh, They're part of the Assyrian uh, Empire, and they brutally murdered Israelites and actually destroyed uh, the northern tribe of Israel. And yet, they actually repented of their sins, the queen of the south is the queen of Sheba. You can read about her in 1 Kings 10. She's also not a part of God's people. And yet here she is. She travels this great distance to, to go to King Solomon to hear questions uh, or to have her questions answered. Uh, and she was actually genuine in her doubts and was opening, open to hearing answers. You have literally two representations of pagan nations that are actually repenting. And yet here you have the religious leaders the ones that should have known the things of God, and yet they're missing the God of the universe and Jesus standing right before them. Jonah, and let's make some compare and contrasting here too, right? Jonah was not a good prophet. Jonah did not like the Ninevites. He tried to run in the opposite direction. And then when he finally did come to the Ninevites, he had one of the worst sermons you can read about in the Old Testament. It's basically like, you're gonna die. God is out to get you. Like, that's literally his sermon. And yet they repent. Jesus is way greater than Jonah, right? Instead of running away from sinners, he runs towards sinners. He doesn't just like sinners. He loves them with the very love of God. And he doesn't preach a message of condemnation. He preaches a message of salvation. And yet, here's the religious leaders, and they're rejecting the one that's greater than Jonah. The same thing with the queen of the south, right? She traveled a great distance to get to King Solomon, one of the greatest kings of uh, Israel's history, to get her questions answered. And yet here we have the king of the universe, not waiting for us to travel a great distance to him, but he travels a great distance to us. He literally leaves his throne in heaven and comes to earth, and he provides the only answer that people will ever need, the hope of the resurrection, And yet here the religious leaders are. They have something greater than King Solomon in front of them, and they fail to acknowledge this sign. Now, before we move on from this and think, I've got nothing to learn uh, from these religious leaders. Like, I get that. Like, they were bad guys. I'm not in that camp. I want us to just pause and answer this question, because I think we have more in common with them than we care to admit. If the only thing Jesus ever did for you was rise from the dead... Would it be enough? If the only thing Jesus ever did for you was rise from the dead, would it be enough? Because I know for me, if I'm honest, there's days where I want something greater than that. Jesus, I I want you to fix what's wrong with this world. 
right? Like, I want you to start with my world, right? Can you fix this situation I'm having at work? Can you manage this conflict that I have with my wife? Can I get the right answer to deal with that? And then can you deal with the world's problems? I don't know if you've noticed, Jesus, but our world's a hot mess. Can you fix this abortion issue? Can you solve the war in Ukraine? Can you fix the the rising gas prices? Hashtag first world problems, Um, right? And I think when we want something greater than the Jesus that we see presented in Scripture, we miss on how great Jesus actually is because we turn Jesus into the Savior we want instead of the Savior we need. See, I want a Savior that gives me everything I ask for. I don't want a Savior that calls me to give up control of my life. But the truth is this. In the resurrection, Jesus actually takes care of our greatest problem, which is sin that separates us from God. And because he's taking care of our greatest problem, we can trust him with every other problem. We can trust him with the rest of our lives. If you avoid becoming a Christian by rejecting Jesus, then the first step to becoming a Christian is through repentance. To repent just simply means to turn. Uh, You're turning away from your sin and you're turning towards Christ in faith. And if you're you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, today can be the, the day where you first make that step of repentance. But make no mistake, if you're a Christian here, repentance isn't just a one-time thing. Yes, when you become a Christian, that first time you repent of your sin, you are a Christian. But repentance isn't just that thing you leave in the past at Bible camp or uh, somewhere in your youth group. No, no, no. Repentance is actually the track you run down as a Christian. When Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, one of the very first things he says is the entire Christian life is one of repentance. This is something we actually grow in. And so for the religious leaders and for us, this starts with turning from the sin that diminishes the greatness of Jesus and turning towards the Savior that we actually need, not the Savior that we want. So how do we avoid becoming a Christian? Like the religious leaders, we can reject Jesus, but we can become a Christian by repenting of our sins. The second answer to this question, how do we avoid becoming a Christian, is this. We try to be neutral with Jesus instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We try to be neutral with Jesus instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, pick back up the text. In verse 43, it says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of, the, of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. How do we avoid becoming a Christian? The second answer to that question is we try to be neutral with Jesus instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's take a time out from this section of scripture, right? Like, what do we do with this? Like, it just seems like Jesus was having this normal conversation with the Pharisees, and then he switches to this haunted house story about ghosts, right? Like, what is happening uh, in here? What is Jesus getting after? I appreciate Alex giving me this text. He apparently did not want to preach this. Um, Well, 
Here's what I think is happening. I, I don't think Jesus just started a, a TED talk on demon possession to make sure that the Pharisees know how to do an exorcism properly. I, I don't think that's what he's doing here. Uh, instead, what I think Jesus is doing here is he's giving an illustration and he's using a subject matter, demon possession, that actually was widely popular in that culture. Earlier in the, in the chapter, they actually literally had an entire conversation on demon possession. So it's not even foreign to this chapter, but it certainly wasn't foreign to that culture. And so Jesus is not giving a commentary on demon possession, but rather he's using this story as an illustration to drive home his point. Well, what is his point? It's probably best summed up this way. The whole point of an exorcism wasn't just so that you got rid of a demon. It's so that you could be filled with the presence of God. That's important to remember as you read this. And so uh, what that means uh, by way of application is it's not enough just to reject what is evil, which clearly the religious leaders knew how to do it. It's not enough to just say, Jesus, we like it when you cast out demons, which the crowd uh, wanted to do. We also have to say yes to the one that has power over that evil. We have to commit ourselves to the one that actually has power over the demons. Otherwise, you're like this demon-possessed man who got freed from a demon, but then didn't actually commit to the one who gave that freedom. He didn't fill his life with the presence of God. And so he's left vulnerable and open to even more evil coming back into his life. A few years back, uh, I really wanted to quit drinking soda, uh, mostly because with, combined with that and my love for candy, I was probably just consuming way too much sugar. Um, and, and, and I quit not a minute too soon either, because I don't know if you guys have seen this year Mountain Dew's new flavor uh, that they have come out with. It's called Mountain Dew Flamin' Hot. <laughs> I don't know why. That sounds like heartburn and diabetes. Uh, it sounds like shame and regret in a bottle. I don't know why uh, somebody made that, but that is the thing. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, back to the story. Uh, I wanted to quit uh, drinking soda. But I was actually finding this hard to do. Mountain Dew Flamin' Hot wasn't invented yet. So uh, I, Dr. Pepper was my guilty pleasure. Um, and I was finding this hard to do because I don't know if you guys have ever like tried to quit doing something and then all of a sudden you just see how much it was a part of your life to begin with. So like I wanted to quit drinking soda and then all of a sudden I'm realizing it's everywhere. It was in my fridge. It was at the restaurants we went to. It was always over at like friends grill outs and, and like I couldn't escape uh, soda. And so what I found was I couldn't just quit drinking soda. I had to replace it with something else, right? And so what I found was that if I really wanted to quit drinking soda, I had to replace it with the wonderful thing and beverage that is LaCroix. <laughs> I love LaCroix. Uh, anybody else LaCroix fans? All right, a few out there, okay. Um, uh, LaCroix lemon chillos are like my ultimate flavor. I love that one. Um, what I found was there was, it was good, right? Because it had the same carbonation as soda, albeit it didn't have the same taste. I'll, I'll admit, like, LaCroix does not have the same taste as uh, soda. It was probably invented, honestly, by the same guy who invented Mountain Dew Flamin' Hot, because whoever invented that clearly has no taste buds and has probably been drinking LaCroix for forever. Um, <laughs> but I didn't care because LaCroix had no sugar, right? And so I began to replace all of my pop with LaCroix, and overnight... I quit drinking soda. And so the principle is this. You can't say no to something without also saying yes to something else. I said no to soda by actually saying yes to LaCroix. And this is what Jesus is trying to drive home 
to these religious leaders with this story. It's what he's trying to drive home to these crowds with this story. You can't say no to evil without saying yes to the one that has power of that evil. You can't just take the good things of Jesus and then go do what you want. You have to commit to him in everything. See, I think what Jesus is doing in this illustration, he's actually returning to a previous conversation uh, that he had uh, with the religious leaders. Uh, In verses 29 through 30, you can read a little bit of it. Uh, He says this, how can someone enter a strong man's house, that's Satan uh, that he's alluding to there, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is connecting the dots from that statement to this illustration, and he's basically saying, hey, listen, I'm the only one that can conquer evil. You can't just remain neutral with me. You can't just take the good things that I do and the miracles and how I can cast out demons and then not give me your life. It doesn't work that way. And make no mistake, if you reject me as the one that can plunder Satan's house, Satan is going to plunder your house. I'm not a take it or leave it option. A rejection of me is not a moral gray area. It's actually the worst thing you can do as a human is to reject Jesus. In fact, if you notice, Jesus says the demon-possessed man is worse off by being possessed by seven more demons than he was with just one demon. Why? Because seven more demons are more powerful than the one demon? It's not what the text says, no. The text says that they were more evil or wicked. What Jesus is saying here is that one of the most lethal things you can do in your life is avoid letting Jesus have control over your life. Because if you avoid that, a rejection of Jesus is actually the foundation for all other kinds of evil entering your life. Now, remember, this is an illustration. It's not a commentary on how demon possession works. I'm not saying... Uh, giving an opinion on that all non-Christians are demon-possessed or that they're the worst people ever. That's not what I am saying here. But what I do think Jesus is trying to drive home is a very severe warning for you and for me, and it's this. Trying to remain neutral with Jesus is the same as rejecting him. Trying to remain neutral with Jesus is the same thing as rejecting him. But so often we want to separate those two, don't we? Right? We, we, we try to separate this. Like, we, we don't hate Jesus. We're, we're not out to be against Jesus. We're certainly not the religious leaders having a plot to destroy and kill Jesus, right? Like, we like Jesus. We, we love Jesus when he's blessing us. We, we maybe like Jesus when he says things that agree with our political party or our social circles or just our personal opinion, and he checks that box. Or, or maybe at the very least, we're just indifferent towards Jesus, living our lives. We're not like thinking all of these terrible thoughts all the time about who Jesus is, but really the reality is he's just not in our thoughts and we're just kind of living life as we want. We don't hate Jesus. We're, we're just kind of neutral with Jesus. But here's the thing. That's not the Jesus that's presented in the Bible. The Jesus that's presented in the Bible doesn't just cast out demons and say, see you later, I'll see you next Christmas and next Easter, come back to church. Like, that's not how Jesus works. No, Jesus demands our entire allegiance. He demands the reins of our lives. He demands control over who we are. And the minute we hear that, we can kind of sidestep and say, no, I, I don't, no thanks, Jesus. Like, I'll take all the miracles and all the other stuff you want to do, but I'm not giving you control of my life. And make no mistake, if you make that 
choice, if you reject Jesus in that way, you're actually rejecting all of who Jesus is. You're not just staying neutral. You're literally walking away from all of who he is. The underlining thrust of this little story from Jesus is that you can't stay in a position of neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You can't pick and choose the Jesus you like. You can't be on his team only when life is working out because eventually Jesus is going to demand your complete loyalty. And if you've been neutral on him in anything, then eventually you're going to reject him in everything. C.S. Lewis, I think, framed it best. He said that Jesus is either a liar. He didn't, he wasn't who he said he was. He's either a lunatic and just said crazy stuff, or he's Lord, and he's worthy of our whole lives. There's no other option. Neutrality on Jesus eventually leads to a fatality of the soul. So this begs the question, how do you not remain neutral with Jesus? Well, let's back up to the point of Christ's illustration. If we're going to say no to something, we have to say yes to something else. If we're going to say no to controlling our own lives, that means we have to say yes to giving up control of our lives to Jesus. And the way you do this is actually by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Earlier in this text, uh, Jesus actually had a really interesting conversation with the religious leaders on the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And all he meant by that was the Holy Spirit's job is actually meant to lead us to a position where we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But if we reject Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're ignoring or blaspheming the prompts of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I think he wants us to come back and see this, that the way to actually becoming a Christian is to actually receive the prompts of the Holy Spirit entering our lives. Let him change our hearts so that we uh, accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. See, in order to become a Christian, you can't just say no to some bad things in your life. You actually have to give control over to Jesus, and the person that helps you do that is the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, don't ignore the Holy Spirit. He's not just going to show you that your sin actually is not giving you the joy that you're longing for. He's also going to show you that there is an amazing life to be found in Jesus Christ, that what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection can actually change every single part of who you are. So give control over to the Spirit today and let Jesus be your Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you are a Christian, you don't graduate from this. I think so often we think like, oh yeah, like, once I become a Christian, then I can figure out how the Holy Spirit works, and I can read some random verse in Revelation, and I get to graduate into all of these amazing, you know, uh, varsity-level Christian things. No, no, no. The one thing I've discovered the, the more I follow Jesus is that most of the Christian life is actually letting the Holy Spirit control your life. Like, I think we get this opposite, right? Like, we think like, oh, I need to like get to a spiritual level and then I'll get more of the spirit. Nonsense. You have 100% of the Holy Spirit the minute you've repented of your sins. You don't have a JV version of him. He's not a balloon that you blow up and you just get, no, no, no. Like you, you have the Holy Spirit 100% of him. The question is, is does he have 100% of you? Does he have control over your life? The Christian life isn't about saying no to sin and avoiding sin. It's actually saying yes 
to developing affections for the righteousness of God. And the way in which you develop affections for God is actually by coming back to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And his life and death and resurrection, when we become in awe of that, our hearts begin to change and love the things of God as the Holy Spirit leads us in that. We avoid becoming a Christian when we try to be neutral with Jesus, but we become a Christian and grow as one when we yield to the Spirit. Lastly, how do we avoid become a Christian? The third answer to that question is we think we are in God's family, but we haven't followed God's will. Picking back to the end of the chapter, verse 46, it says this, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who had told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We think we are in God's family, but we haven't followed God's will. That's the last way we avoid becoming a Christian. It seems like the narrative is kind of shifted again here, right? Um, uh, but Matthew has actually purposely placed this story here in this chapter at the end, uh, because even though uh, the characters have changed, the subject matter has not changed at all. Uh, in this scene, Jesus wants to leave no doubt that he gives no special treatment to anyone who might want to become a Christian. So often we think like, I I'm a Christian because I went to church and I grew up in a Christian family and uh, I went on a mission trip and I was part of a youth group and I told my friends about Jesus and I, I helped my neighbor and I followed the golden rule. That's what makes me a Christian, right? No. Jesus is saying, just because you have a bunch of Christian friends and a Christian family and a church that you come to every Sunday, that does not make you a Christian. You don't get special treatment. There is no plus one to heaven. We all have to make a decision for ourselves. If anyone had a right to think that they were good with Jesus, it would have been his biological family. But the irony of verse 46 is that the family is actually outside of the house while his disciples are inside the house listening to Jesus. For so many of us, we think we're a Christian because we have this spiritual resume, but the reality is, is we're actually on the outside of what it means to be a Christian. The way in which you are on the inside is by placing your faith in Jesus. We don't know what uh, his family wanted to speak to him about uh, when, they, when they grabbed him, but the point is what they wanted to do is they wanted to stop whatever Jesus was doing and have him cater to them, Right? And, and Jesus says, no, that's not the way this works. A person is in the family of God and, and is identified by doing the will of God, not by Jesus catering to our will. So what does it mean to do the will of God? Well, Jesus has already taught on this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, check this, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's going to go on to explain what the will of God is. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And when will, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what does it mean to do the will of the Father? It's not going and doing a bunch of religious things based on this text. It's actually knowing Jesus. Did you catch that? Jesus is going to tell these people who did all these things in Jesus' name, I never knew you, meaning I didn't, you didn't actually have faith in me. You didn't have a real relationship with 
me. And so what Jesus is saying is the will of the Father is actually to know Jesus. It's to put our faith in Jesus. See, because Jesus did the will of God perfectly by going to the cross for you and for me, we can now know the will of God, or we can now do the will of God and enter into a new relationship simply by putting our faith in Jesus, the one who did the will of God perfectly. And I love what Jesus says here. He doesn't say that those who do the will of the Father are going to be Christians. Those who do the will of the Father are going to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Those who do the will of God are going to participate in the resurrection. All of those things are true. But what does he say here? He says, these are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. They're family. Because the fact that God brought us into his own family just shows off the love of God. Because do you guys know that, like, God could have saved you and not brought you into his family? Like, he could have canceled your debt of sin. He could have provided a new heart. He could have filled you with the Holy Spirit. He could have brought you into the kingdom of heaven. He can resurrect you into a new body where you can have a relationship with him forever and ever and ever. And you still don't have to be in the family of God to experience those things. And yet God went a step above and said, I'm not just going to call you a friend. I'm not just going to call you a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to call you family. That's how much God loves us. As we step out to plant this church in Greeley, one of the amazing uh, truths of Scripture that has really comforted me uh, is that Jesus said, I will build my church. He never said, you will build my church. He says, I will build my church. And this is a great comfort to me because we haven't even arrived in Greeley yet, and God's already seeking and saving the lost. He's already building his church before we ever show up on the scene. Uh, in fact, in uh, Easter of this last year, City Light Fort Collins, which is one of uh, the churches that are part of the City Light family they planted uh, two years ago, they had baptisms, and three of the people that were baptized this Easter live in Greeley and are actually going to be a part of this church plant. God is already seeking and saving the lost there. One of these guys' names, uh, his name is John, and John's done an ama- or, uh, God's done an amazing work in John's life. Uh, John grew up in Greeley. He's originally from there, um, was a, a football player, was really good, got a scholarship to go to the University of Michigan, and uh, he blew out uh, his shoulder and his knee and lost his scholarship and had to come back to Greeley and has lived a really rough life. Uh, but God has pursued him and chased him down, and he's met him in some really messy situation. Uh, he's pursued uh, him and broken down his pride. Uh, he's met him in the midst of unbelievable tragedy, and at his lowest point, John happened to just stumble across City Light Fort Collins on YouTube, saw the sermons, came to church, and has just really never left. And God has gotten a hold of this guy's heart. When we were out there a few weeks ago doing our vision week, and I was talking to John, and through tears, uh, he, began, he began to tell me, you know, John, I've walked into so many churches, and every time I'm there, I just felt like I received judgment and condemnation for my past sins. But ever since I've come to City Light, ever, ever since I've come to know Jesus, over these past few months, it, it feels like all that shame, all that judgment has just faded away. And as I was thinking about this passage, I couldn't help but think that Jesus had finally met this guy. Because unlike the churches that he had been in that were saying judgment, condemnation, Jesus was over his life saying, here's my brother, here's my family. Why? Because John was this awesome, super religious dude that grew up in the church and had special treatment from God? No. It's because John knew Jesus. Because he knows Jesus and has placed his faith in him, 
He's part of the family of God. City Light Church, don't let this message slip away without considering the ways that maybe you've avoided becoming a Christian. I think it's so easy to hear a message like this and think, ah, that's for somebody else out there. But ask yourself this question, does God want to speak to me today? Where am I at with God? If you're not a Christian, I'd pray that you'd stop coming up with clever ways to avoid Jesus, right? Stop rejecting him. Stop being neutral with him. Stop pretending that you're in God's family when you're not. Give your life to Jesus today. And if you already are a Christian, repentance, being filled with the Spirit, and knowing Jesus, these are necessities to becoming a Christian. They're not just simply one-time things. We grow in these things. They're tracks that we run on in the Christian life and grow in. May we lay down our clever ways that we avoid Jesus. May we give our lives to him. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful to be in this church this morning. God, this is my first time to be here on a Sunday. And it's so comforting to know that um, there are saints all over the world gathering and worshiping and making much of Jesus. That uh, God, there, there are several city light churches, and even beyond that, there are more and more churches that are preaching the gospel and gathering today. God, I just pray that you would increase that, that you would increase the gospel going forth, that you would change lives. Would you do it here in Lincoln? Would you do it in Greeley? God, would you get a hold of our own hearts and all the ways that we avoid giving control over to you? And would you change us from the inside out? It's in your son's mighty name that we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to uh, respond uh, to God's word today by taking communion. Uh, communion is a way to remember the gospel and that following Jesus is all about what he has done for us on the cross. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, meaning you've repented, you have the Holy Spirit, you know Jesus, um, then we uh, will welcome you to take communion with us today. Uh, if you're not uh, a Christian, uh, meaning you're uh, still in a place uh, where you're trying to figure this all out. Uh, my prayer is that maybe this would be the first day that you would actually give your life over to Jesus and then you can participate with us. But if you still need uh, space to figure that out, we don't want to uh, manipulate you into Christianity. And so uh, we would just ask that you would refrain from taking communion this morning. But, but as we uh, participate, let me give some instructions. There's going to be uh, servers up at the front. Um, you can just come up. The, the, the bread represents the body of Christ given for you, and you can dip that in the juice. The juice represents his blood shed for you. And then I'd ask that you would actually go back to your seat, uh, and uh, we're all going to partake together uh, as, as we do this. If, you're, uh, if you don't want to come up to the servers, I think there are individual packets that I saw on the way in. Uh, you're more than welcome to pick up one of those. There's also a gluten-free option up here. Uh, up front as well. Uh, also, take some time to reflect uh, before you come up, before you enter into communion. Uh, pray and ask God to meet you in that place. Maybe confess some ways that you've avoided giving control over to Jesus. And when you're ready, you can come up. I will come up and we will partake together.